You should resign and you should be criminally investigated. Sounds. She sounds mad. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Mm-hmm. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast at 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI News Radio, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Those are just the terrestrial straight stations streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik. Yes, we are blanketing planet Earth five days a week. Glad you could join us for another thrilling episode that we call The Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Boy, howdy, is Elizabeth Warren mad? Angry. She's, mad. She, She's very mad. She today. is mad. Uh, hi, Desi Doyen. Hey. That's our producer, Desi Doyen. We will get to, I want to see if we can play as absolutely much of Elizabeth Warren's excoriation, <sighs> takedown, interview, questioning. I don't know what we what, what you would call it. Uh, Question time in the U.S. Senate. Yes, it certainly was. She was on fire. I she was on fire, and so we're going to play uh, a little bit of uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren and her interview. I don't know what uh, what, what, what you even call that uh, that she did with the uh, Wells Fargo CEO John Stumpf today. Uh, just before we went to air here, thank you, Desi Doyen, for finding it amazing. We'll play that uh, coming up. Uh, in the meantime, since we uh, spent a lot of yesterday talking about the terror attacks uh, in New York, New Jersey, and up in Minnesota yesterday, which, of course, uh, has freaked out the national media, has uh, made Donald Trump his own personal national hero because he called it. He called yeah. it. It's those uh, Muslims. Uh, he called it. We got to keep them out of the country. Um, <laughs> uh, here's uh, here's an item that did not get nearly as much attention, despite happening yesterday as well. For some reason, a Houston man is set to appear before a federal magistrate. This was yesterday, Monday afternoon. On charges, he participated in a bomb plot trying to transport deadly explosives, according to a news release from the U.S. attorney Kenneth Mag- uh, Magidston, uh, however you pronounce that. Sorry about that, Kenneth. Carrie Lee Ogborn, 50 years old, was arrested late Friday after retrieving a package he thought contained explosives powerful enough to maim or kill people or destroy buildings. Carrie Lee Ogborn, 
funny. That doesn't sound like a Muslim name. Well, then it's clearly not terrorism. According to a statement released by the U.S. attorney, Carrie Lee Ogborn is charged with attempting to transport explosives with the intent that those explosives be used to kill, injure, or intimidate any individual or damage or destroy a vehicle or building. He was arrested late on Friday after picking up a package he believed contained such explosives. Investigators believe he tried to order the explosive materials online from an illegal weapons marketplace through an encrypted network that rendered his IP address undetectable and made him anonymous. Yes, people who know how to use the Internet can know how to spoof IP addresses so that you can be anonymous or that you can look like you are coming from anywhere, any particular country, etc., Ogborn sent a private message to a vendor on this network in August saying he intended to use the materials to blow up a building. It turned out the vendor was an undercover FBI agent, according to the court documents. Ogborn then ordered the materials. He went to a post office box to pick them up, and officials arrested him shortly thereafter. Now, I don't know if he, uh, you know, if he's guilty or not here. I don't know if this is one of those cases where the FBI encourages uh, people to do things that they might not otherwise have done. I think that's called entrapment. Uh, I, and I, so I'm not making a judgment on that. What I am making a judgment on is if this guy had a Muslim name, if he was, if he came from elsewhere, if he was an immigrant from elsewhere, as a matter of fact, even if he was a, a American born but had a Muslim name, this, of course, would be all over the news. But I suspect you haven't heard about it. I hadn't heard about it. Someone uh, popped it up on uh, on Twitter after we went off air yesterday. And I thought, wow. That hasn't been covered uh, anywhere that I've seen. So let me just note here, because uh, we've talked about this many times, but uh, research, according to Gallup, shows that uh, the U.S. had identified more than 160 Muslim Americans terrorist Muslim American terrorist suspects and perpetrators in the decade since 9/11, but. Uh, that is just a small, a tiny percentage of the thousands of acts of similar uh, attempts at violence and uh, and so forth that occur in the U.S. each year. Nonetheless, Muslim American terrorism and its suspects are brought to national attention by the media and not now by our Republican presidential nominee, creating the impression that Muslim American terrorism is far more prevalent than, in fact, it actually is. As we've reported many times over the years on this program, domestic terrorism, domestic extremism, not Islamic extremism, has long been a far greater concern for both federal and state authorities. Last year, for example, uh, a, a report, uh, 2015 report from the Triangle Center on Terrorism and Homeland Security found, quote, law enforcement agencies in the U.S. consider anti-government violent extremists, not radicalized Muslims, to be the most severe threat of political violence that they face. They perceive violent extremism by these anti-government radicals to be a much more severe th threat nationally than the threat of violent extremism in their own jurisdictions. I'm pointing this out just because, well, largely nobody else is. Uh, while everybody has been obsessed with the attacks, and it's, I guess, understandable to some ex uh, extent, uh, there were explosions, nobody was killed uh, in, in New York and New Jersey. There were stabbings up in Minnesota. 
but these are, frankly, the exception to the rules when it comes to uh, extremism and terrorism in these United States. And yet we've got a presidential nominee in Donald Trump who is running almost exclusively on the fear of others, on the fear of the illegals, on the uh, fear of the Muslims who are all coming to get us. Uh, well, I ain't afraid. Uh, but what I am afraid is uh, the misreporting by the media, the mis the opportunistic, um, you know, political campaigns of authoritarian uh, frauds and fear mongers like Donald Trump. And yes, I am afraid of how well he is doing in the polls right now and uh, the possibility of him becoming the next president of the United States. The Commission on Presidential Debates, speaking of, on Monday announced the topics for the first presidential debate, which will be held next Monday, September 26th. NBC's Lester Holt will be the moderator, and he apparently was allowed to decide the, the topics to be discussed during the uh, much-anticipated event. You think we'll cover that on this show, Dan? Ah, we'll probably. Uh, the three topics to be discussed during the debate, he gave these very general uh, uh, description of the topics. It'll be held, the debate will be held at Hofstra University in New York next week. Um, America's direction, achieving prosperity, and securing America. Oh, boy. Uh, sounds kind of Republican-y. It does. Doesn't it sounds it? like a very conservative focused on what conservatives are interested in hearing about at a debate, not necessarily going to lead us to any policy information or any actual contrast if they're going to allow Trump to lie his way through it like they pretty much do already. Well, the only uh, thing I'll correct you there is uh, conservative. You, you keep using that You're word right. conservative. Right winger, right wingy, Republican, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah. And by the way, I'm just going to go on record right now saying that both Holt, uh, Lester Holt and Hillary Clinton, they're going to get rolled in this debate. You're calling uh, it? I'm, call, I'm calling it. Uh, Trump, uh, no matter what he does, as long as he doesn't pass out uh, or something in the middle of it, uh, he will uh, walk away somehow as the winner of this debate. Now, I hope I'm wrong, but here's the deal. There is no way... There is no way. And, you know, and, and I'd love to blame the media for this. I'd love to blame Lester Holt in advance for this because he is going to get rolled. But there is in truth, there is no way to honestly cover the menace that is Donald Trump uh, and, and the menace that he represents to our nation and, and the world in truth without calling him out. You just have to call him out as a liar, as a con man, as a, a, a criminal. And even as a racist and as an authoritarian demagogue. And that is exactly the thing that the mainstream media, frankly, really any journalist tries to avoid. We don't. I'm not in the corporate media, but I, I don't like going out and calling somebody a liar or a racist or a demagogue um, because, you know, it verges on ad hominem, on ad hominem. It, it, ver it sounds like a personal attack. But in truth, in this case with Donald Trump, it is just the truth. So that's something that I can do on this show. But, you know, the institutional corporate media has a much more difficult time. Uh, I would say in many cases they are simply unable to for good or bad reasons. They're simply unable to, you know, say, no, sir, you are lying. And uh, and that's just the truth. They can't do it. 
And, and I've struggled with this on this program and, and at bradblog.com on how to properly cover Donald Trump. Uh, to be fair, uh, I don't care about balance, but I do care somewhat about fairness. I want to be fair. But how can you be fair to someone who is a liar and a con man other than calling him a liar and a con man? And uh, Des, we had talked uh, over the last uh, day or so, uh, you had brought up some arcane tax policy that was discovered that uh, Donald Trump's taxes yeah. would raise. Right. If you delve into his tax policy, there's a part of it that it's not just a huge giveaway to the rich, but will also specifically raise taxes on single parents. Right. And you know what? Who cares? Nobody cares. Apparently. It doesn't matter. Well, no, it doesn't matter because ultimately this is a policy discussion and a policy discussion. And, and this election is not about policies. It right. is not about tax policies. Uh, oh, Mitt Romney is going to raise uh, this tax or lower that tax or Barack Obama is going to do this or that. This election uh, is not about those sort of arcane tax policies. And so while we could get in here and we could we could show you, oh, where Donald Trump says he's going to do this, but his tax policy will actually do this. It doesn't seem to make sense on the other. So we could talk about his, his you know, his arcane policies, uh, policy proposals. Um, uh, you know, for things like taxes, or we could discuss his rabid authoritarianism and his racism. But you know what? Others are doing that. Uh, and frankly, it hasn't much worked. It actually arguably has helped him. You mean it, your hatred makes him stronger? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. Well, <laughs> yeah. not just the hatred, right. but pointing out, you know, that he's a racist. We have enough racists in this country that they go, oh, really? Good. I'm going to vote for that guy. I, you know, that's exactly what he was able to get away with during the uh, during the Republican primary and Democrats sat around kidding themselves, saying, well, that may have worked during the primary, but that's never going to work during a general election. Uh, well, it's kind of working during a general election, much as, well, we had warned. I yeah, called it. You did. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's try to focus here on uh, for the moment on the only thing left, the fact that he appears to be a scofflaw criminal and a con man. Let's see if that sticks. Uh, you know what? At least if it doesn't, at least we're covering stuff that is not receiving the kind of coverage from the corporate media that it should. That, frankly, it would, in fact, if it was Hillary Clinton or virtually any other candidate doing these things. Uh, I'm, my God, uh, Hillary Clinton would have had to have resigned from the campaign long ago if she had done anything even remotely like this stuff that David Fahrenholt at Washington Post, uh, you know, has been digging up and has been staying on doggedly. He deserves credit for trying to, frankly, ignore all of the other noise and focus on one single aspect of the great Donald Trump con, and that is his nonprofit, tax-exempt, so-called charitable foundation. And Fahrenheit has a new story on that today. Last week, we had uh, discussed more work from uh, Fahrenheit and some other uh, groups of non-government organizations like uh, uh, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, Crew. We had Noah Bookbinder on from Crew. Um, discussing what his group had discovered, the apparent payoffs, bribery of Florida Attorney General Pam Bondi by Donald Trump uh, and Trump's admission that he illegally used his tax-exempt, taxpayer-subsidized foundation to illegally give a $25,000 donation uh, to Bondi's political committee, which is illegal, 
to have a charity giving to a political committee. But it also raised questions about whether it was bribery because Pam Bondi, her office was said to be looking into uh, fraud. Uh, the fraud case that New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman has been bringing against the Trump uh, Trump University. University and Trump Institute and these other get rich quick scams that uh, Donald Trump has been running for years. So uh, hopefully these charges of bribery will be investigated by the Department of Justice, as uh, crew has now called for and as New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman uh, has suggested he might look at. But don't hold your breath for any of these charges to be brought before the election in, what, 50 days or so. Yeah, I mean, it would be highly unusual for the Department of Justice to say, hey, we're going to launch an investigation into a presidential candidate of the opposite party of our administration. That's going to sound and look really bad. Well, yeah, that's the problem. So they're, you know, not going to want to bring charges. Yeah. They got to wait. Still, it must be covered so at least the American people will know that their president is a crook before they elect him this time. That might be a nice change of pace. All right. To that end, then, Donald, uh, Donald, David Fahrenholt's uh, story today in the uh, in the Washington Post. Donald Trump spent more than a quarter million dollars from his charitable foundation to settle lawsuits that involved the billionaires for profit businesses those cases, which together used $258,000 from Trump's charity, were among four newly documented expenditures in which Trump may have violated laws against self-dealing. Uh, now, self-dealing sounds kind of dirty if you think about it, but uh, it's the uh, con. I looked at it. Look it up on uh, 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 the, the the legal dictionary online. The conduct of a trustee, an attorney, or other fiduciary that consists of taking advantage of his or her position in a transaction and acting for his or her interests rather than for the interests of the beneficiaries of the trust or the interests of his or her clients. In other words, uh, if you're running a charitable foundation, uh, you can't use that foundation to help yourself. You have to uh, use it in, in, the, uh, in the work of that charitable foundation which, as I said, receives special privileges from the from the federal government. It's tax exempt and so forth. So uh, these laws that it looks like he might have, uh, I would say, did based on this evidence that that he did violate uh, against self-dealing um, that prohibit nonprofit leaders from using charity money to benefit themselves or their businesses. And that's what he appears to have done. For example, here's a few of the cases. In one case the uh, from 2007, Trump's Mar-a-Lago Club faced $120,000 in unpaid fines from the town of Palm Beach, Florida, resulting in a dispute over the size of a flagpole. <sighs> Trying to uh, <laughs> uh, trying to avoid the the uh, the joke here. Uh, this case uh, violated local regulations limiting flagpoles to 42 feet, but Donald Trump put up an 80 foot American flagpole, and he then took the uh, took the town to court only to settle the issue by donating to a charity of Palm Beach cho Palm Beach's choice. Palm Beach chose the Fisher House and Trump bragged in a letter to the town that he had given $100,000 to charity and another $25,000 to a veterans group. Um, the problem was 
The check provided to the town actually came from the Trump Foundation, not from Trump himself. Uh, it came from his charitable group. So he paid nothing for it. The charitable group did. Other people paid for it. Well, yeah, we'll get to that point in a moment. In, in a settlement, uh, Palm Beach had agreed to waive the fines if, his, if, his, uh, if Trump and his club, his Mar-a-Lago for-profit club, made a $100,000 donation uh, to this charity. Uh, in another case, court papers say one of Trump's golf courses in New York agreed to settle a lawsuit by making a donation to the plaintiff's chosen charity. A $158,000 donation in this case was made by the Trump Foundation, according to tax records. Smaller uh, amounts were involved with some of the other expenditures. In 2013, for example, Trump used $5,000 from, from the foundation to buy advertisements touting his chain of hotels in programs for three events organized by a D.C. preservation group. And in 2014, Trump spent $10,000 of the foundation's money for a portrait of himself <clears throat> bought at a, uh, at a charity fundraiser, or rather another portrait of himself, because several years earlier, as Fahrenheit reports, Trump had used $20,000 from the Trump Foundation to buy a different portrait, a six-foot-tall portrait of himself. This one was only was only four feet tall. Oh, goodness. So uh, Fahrenheit reports these cases provide new evidence that Trump ran his charity in a way that may have violated U.S. tax law and gone against the moral conventions of philanthropy. And the quotes in this article from some of these uh, charity experts are amazing. Uh, Jeffrey Tannenbaum who advises charities at uh, the Venable Law Firm in Washington, said, I represent 700 nonprofits a year, and I've never encountered anything so brazen as what Trump has done here. After the Post described the details of the Trump Foundation gifts, Tenenbaum described them as, quote, really shocking. If he's using other people's money run through his foundation to satisfy his personal obligations, then that's about as blatant an example of self-dealing as I've seen in a while. So mind you, this was not even the money that he had given to his own charitable foundation to then give out to others. This was money that he had taken from other people into his own foundation and then gave it away to solve his, his his the legal problems yeah. that he was having, to, it was I basically mean, his own make good legal slush fund. This charity, Trump founded uh, the charity in eighty in nineteen eighty seven. For years, he was the only donor, but in two thousand and six, he gave away almost all of the money that he had already donated to the foundation. It had just four thousand dollars at year's end, and then he transformed the Trump Foundation into something the uh, uh, Fahrenheit describes as uh, something rarely seen in the world of philanthropy, a name brand, a name branded foundation whose namesake provides none of its money. Trump gave relatively small donations in 2007, 2008, but afterwards he gave nothing. He has given zero since 2008 to the Trump Foundation. Uh, no donations at all from Trump. Its money has come from other donors. They cite uh, notably pro wrestling executives Vince and Linda McMahon, who gave a total of five million dollars from 2007 to 2008, played for absolute chumps. Those two. Wow. 
$5 million, which Trump then gave away and took credit for and got out of legal trouble for. He's still the foundation's president, by the way. He told the IRS in his latest public findings that he works uh, half a, about half an hour a week for the charity. Uh, in 2012, uh, for instance, Trump spent $12,000 of the foundation money to buy a football helmet signed by NFL quarterback Tim Tebow. Uh, in 2007, Trump's wife Melania bid $20,000 for the uh, for that six foot tall portrait of uh, Trump during a charity gala. Uh, Trump l- later paid for the painting from the foundation. In those cases, tax ex- experts said Trump was not allowed to simply keep these items and display them in a home or business. They had to be put to a charitable use. But Trump's campaign has not responded to questions of what became of that helmet or that six-foot portrait of himself. He hasn't given it away for charitable use to, to somebody somehow. He hasn't auctioned it off uh, and you know given the proceeds to a, a needy organization. Uh, these new four cases uh, were discovered in the Trump Foundation's tax filings. So the foundation itself has to release its tax filings, but Trump himself has refused to do so. Uh, this uh, th- this flagpole issue, he was he was being fined twelve hundred and fifty dollars a day uh, until he, until they finally came upon the settlement for, you know, for violating the, uh, the height of the flagpole that was allowed here. The, he hit upon a settlement and then he just had his, his charity write a check again. These people who gave millions of dollars to the charity, uh, probably had no idea. I, I almost certainly had no idea that they were giving Donald Trump a legal slush fund to spend to get his ass out of trouble. And that's what he did. Uh, these uh, another case in which Trump Foundation uh, seemed to was used to settle a legal dispute. Uh, this began with a hole in one reports Fahrenheit in 2010. A man named Martin Greenberg hit a hole in one on the 13th hole uh, while playing in a charity tournament. It was a charity tournament at Trump's course in Westchester County, New York. So he won a one million dollar prize for hitting that hole in one. Pretty good. Uh, he won that prize, however, only briefly, because later he was told that he had won nothing. What? The prize's uh, rules required that the shot had to go 150 yards, but Trump's course had allegedly made the hole too short. So the whole hole was not 150 yards, so he hits a hole in one oh and my he God. gets nothing. Wow. This is the kind of guy Donald Trump is. Uh, So Greenberg sued in this case. uh, And according to court papers, Trump's golf course signed off on a settlement that required that they would make a donation uh, uh, of of Greenberg's choosing. And uh, the parties informed the court they had settled the case. One hundred and fifty eight thousand dollar donation was sent to the Martin Greenberg Foundation. That money came from the Trump Foundation the charitable Trump Foundation, uh, to pay off to make this legal suit go away. Greenberg's foundation reported getting nothing that year from Trump personally or from the golf uh, from the golf club. Several tax experts have said that the two cases appear to be clear cases of self-dealing as defined in the tax code. The Trump Foundation had made this donation, it seemed, so that a Trump business did not have to do so. Rosemary Fay, a lawyer in San Francisco who advises nonprofits, said both cases clearly, clearly 
fit the definition of self-dealing. She said, quote, yes, Trump pledged as part of the settlement to make a payment to a charity. And yes, the foundation is writing a check to a charity. But the obligation was Trump's. And you can't have a charitable foundation paying off Trump's personal obligations. That would be classic self-dealing. Uh, there's more. But it's 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 an extraordinary to me, at least it's and it's it's an extraordinary story on its own. But when you stop and think, well, what if this had been done? What if this had been done by Hillary Clinton? I, I can't even imagine uh, how she would be plummeting in the polls because of this. We'd be talking about who else can uh, step in and become the Democratic Party nominee. But for the Republicans, Either they don't care or they don't know about it because the corporate media uh, doesn't bother to hammer on these things the way they should before this man, this criminal, this con man gets elected as president of the United States. Well, I'm glad that you're covering it because I'm pretty darn sure that it's not going to get that much coverage, if at all, as you say, in you know, on cable news, which most people get their news from or anywhere else. No, because they're all concerned uh, about how Muslims are coming to get us. Uh, oh, and uh, Donald Trump, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, something about her uh, charitable foundation must, must somehow be dirty. We can't tell you exactly what it is, but something about it must be dirty. There's got to be a pony in there somewhere. Exactly. Well, here's an actual pony. But guess what? Corporate media doesn't give a damn. And I don't know if the voters will either. Quick break. And we are back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. What the public hears over the public airwaves matters. Without an informed electorate, we've got, well, we got what we have right now. We do our best on the broadcast five days a week to balance that with accurate reporting on issues that actually matter. We don't always get it right, but we try like hell to do so. And we do it all independently and without the influence of corporate or political funding. But we can't do it without you. Please don't presume others will step up. We need you to help us keep doing what Desi Doyen and myself try to do every day on the Bradcast. Please help us continue to do so by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep the Bradcast going and telling the truth over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. Don't wait. Please stop by today. Thanks. Oh, the Wells Fargo wagon is a coming down the street. Oh, please let it be for me. Oh, the Wells Fargo wagon is a coming down the street. I wish, I wish I knew what it could be. Yeah. I got a box of I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think uh, the Wells Fargo wagon was expecting what happened today in the U.S. Senate, or maybe they were. I don't know. But the Wells Fargo wagon, in the form of CEO John Stumpf rolled into the U.S. Senate, and boy, howdy, did he get rolled over by Elizabeth Warren. Speaking of self-dealing, we were talking about in the last segment Donald Trump and his self-dealing, and I don't know if any of that, I have no idea if any of that is going to make any difference in the way the American electorate actually views Donald Trump at this point. I really don't. As I said at the top of the show, I have no clue how to cover Donald Trump. I don't think anyone in the media does. We have no clue how to cover him because nobody from a major political party 
uh, has ever run for president like this guy. It almost sounds like a compliment, but I don't mean it that way. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just a whole different story. And this is a very, very scary time for the U.S. But uh, anyway, his self-dealing, Donald Trump's self-dealing with his own charitable foundation. Uh, hopefully we help that come to light a little bit more by covering what the Washington Post so uh, expertly has been doing. Uh, David Fahrenheit over there. Um, but uh, the self-dealing that the CEO of Wells Fargo and the other executives, you know, I would love to tell you, go go find a new bank. If you're a, if you got a credit card or if you use Wells, Wells Fargo, get rid of that sleazy bank. But I hate to tell you to do that because all of the other banks are damn near as sleazy. Although but, credit unions are pretty yeah. good. Yeah, if you can find a, a credit union, uh, you know, they're better. But, you know, good luck, because that's what's uh, come of this country. And if you're one of those people who think Donald Trump might change that, he's one of the outsiders who will clean up this mess. Think again. He is this mess. He represents everything that these uh, CEOs stand for. Anyway, let me get let's get to this. Uh, I, I was going to originally put this into the, the, the final block, but I want to play an extended clip here and I want to make sure we don't run out of time. So Wells Fargo CEO John Stumpf was in the, uh, the U.S. Senate Banking Committee today. Uh, to discuss, uh, to to be uh, questioned by the, the senators concerning this boondoggle that was uh, recently exposed that they had created millions of fake accounts, essentially, uh, over several years. They ended up firing thousands of employees, blaming the employees for this. But in fact, it was Wells Fargo that had been encouraging their employees to to create these accounts to upsell customers so that they had more accounts with them, checking, savings, uh, several credit cards, mortgages, whatever it was to try to, you know, get as many uh, accounts out of each customer so they could charge them as much as possible in fees and so forth. So they would these employees ended up basically creating uh, fake accounts and then. Uh, charging uh, customers yeah, for them. They had impossible quotas to meet that required them to get, you know, as many accounts as they possibly could because that way they would be able to increase that quota and they wouldn't get paid if they didn't or they'd get fired if they didn't, regardless of whether those accounts were actually useful for the customer. More than 2 million phony accounts and their target, they had an average, I think it was of, of six different accounts per customer and they were targeting, trying to get them up to eight different accounts and they didn't even need six. So the CEO Stump apologized for that scandal. Uh, and on Tuesday in the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, he admitted he admitted that the bank didn't do enough to stop the improper sales. That's an understatement. In fact, uh, the, the bank, the executives had been encouraging them. He, Stump went on to describe uh, new steps that they were, tr he said they were trying to assess and limit the damage, including expanding an internal search for fake accounts by two years. So this is a huge mess. And in walks U.S. Senator, uh, not vice presidential candidate, U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren, who had uh, a few thoughts for Wells Fargo CEO John Stumpf in the U.S. Senate today. Since this massive years-long scam came to light, you have said repeatedly, quote, I am accountable. 
But what have you actually done to hold yourself accountable? Have you resigned as CEO or chairman of Wells Fargo? The board, I serve have at the... Have you resigned? No, I have not. All right. Have you returned one nickel of the millions of dollars that you were paid while this scam was going on? Well, first of all, this was by 1% of our people. I, and That's and, not my question. And, my question is about responsibility. Have you returned one nickel of the millions of dollars that you were paid while this scam was going on? The, the board will take care have of that. Have you returned one nickel of the money you earned while this scam was going on? And, and the board will do... I will the, take that as a no, then. Have you fired a single senior executive? And by that, I don't mean a regional manager or a branch manager. I'm asking about the people who actually led your community banking division or your compliance division. We've, we've made a change in our regional, to lead our regional bank. I just said, I'm not asking about <laughs> regional managers. I'm not asking about branch managers. I'm asking if you have fired senior management, the people who actually led community banking division, who oversaw this fraud, or the compliance division that was in charge of making sure that the bank complied with the law. Kerry Toll said... Did you so, fire no. any of those people? No. Okay, so you haven't resigned, you haven't returned a single nickel of your personal earnings, you haven't fired a single senior executive. Instead, evidently, your definition of accountable is to push the blame to your low-level employees who don't have the money for a fancy PR firm to defend themselves. It's gutless leadership. In your time as chairman and CEO, Wells has been famous for cross-selling, which is pushing existing customers to open more accounts. Cross-selling is one of the main reasons that Wells has become the most valuable bank in the world. Wells measures cross-selling by the number of different accounts a customer has with Wells. Other big banks average fewer than three accounts per customer, but you set the target at eight accounts. Every customer of Wells should have eight accounts with the bank. And that's not because you ran the numbers and found that the average customer needed eight banking accounts. It is because, quote, eight rhymes with great. This was your rationale right there in your 2010 annual report. Cross-selling isn't about helping customers get what they need. If it was, you wouldn't have to squeeze your employees so hard to make it happen. No, cross-selling is all about pumping up Wells' stock price, isn't it? No, cross-selling is shorthand for uh, deepening relationships. We only oh, do well... Let me stop you right there. You say no? No? I I'm, Here I'm... are the transcripts of 12 quarterly earnings calls that you participated in from 2012 to 2014, the three full years in which we know this scam was going on. I'd like to submit them for the record, if I may, Mr. Chair. Thank you. These are calls where you personally made your pitch to investors and analysts about why Wells Fargo is a great investment. And in all 12 of these calls, you personally cited Wells Fargo's success at cross-selling retail accounts as one of the main reasons to buy more stock in the company. While this scam was going on, you personally held an average 
of 6.75 million shares of Wells stock. The share price during this time period went up by about $30, which comes out to more than $200 million in gains, all for you personally, and thanks in part to those cross-sell numbers that you talked about on every one of those calls. You know, here's what really gets me about this, Mr. Stump. <laughs> If one of your tellers took a handful of $20 bills out of the cash drawer, they'd probably be looking at criminal charges for theft. They could end up in prison. But you squeezed your employees to the breaking point so they would cheat customers and you could drive up the value of your stock and put hundreds of millions of dollars in your own pocket. And when it all blew up, you kept your job You kept your multi-million dollar bonuses, and you went on television to blame thousands of $12 an hour employees who were just trying to meet cross-sell quotas that made you rich. This is about accountability. You should resign. You should give back the money that you took while this scam was going on, and you should be criminally investigated by both the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission. You know, this just isn't right. A cashier who steals a handful of 20s is held accountable, but Wall Street executives who almost never hold themselves accountable, not now and not in 2008, when they crushed the worldwide economy. The only way that Wall Street will change is if executives face jail time when they preside over massive frauds. We need tough new laws to hold corporate executives personally accountable, and we need tough prosecutors who have the courage to go after people at the top. Until then, it will be business as usual. And at giant banks like Wells Fargo, that seems to mean cheating as many customers, investors, and employees as they possibly can. That was Elizabeth Warren in the U.S. Senate today uh, <laughs> talking to uh, Wells Fargo CEO John Stumpf. Is it too late to nominate her to run for president this year? Debbie yeah, Doyen? yeah, I think we're past that time. That really? window has closed. Wow, yeah. wow, that was just amazing. And uh, boy, do I wish we had another 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 U.S. senators like Elizabeth Warren. Oh, indeed. And, you know, part of this was the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was Elizabeth Warren's baby mm -hmm. before she ran for Senate. And she was absolutely right about the need to create the uh, CF, the CFPB, the Consumer Financial mm -hmm. Protection Bureau. On the day that this Wells Fargo story broke, Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, Republican Speaker of the House, talked about how important it was to repeal the CFPB yep. and how important it was to roll back these terrible, terrible restrictions that were preventing consumers from getting their full value that same day. And it just brings me back to elections have consequences. They, they do indeed. And that, by the way, is exactly the type of regulation that Donald Trump has said he will get rid of. Yep. Uh, financial regulations, environmental regulations, 
That's who wins. Guys like John Stumpf are the guys who win uh, if Donald Trump uh, becomes the president of the United States. So Senator Warren, uh, she's not going to be the nominee, obviously. She isn't the nominee here in 2016. But, uh, well, in four years, the Democrats may be looking for someone and Elizabeth Warren may just be the ticket in 2020. Elections do have consequences. We'll talk more about that after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the long yes. day. Yes, the eyes of Texas eyes are upon you, particularly if you're uh, one of the 600,000 voters in the state of Texas who are legally registered but don't have the type of photo ID that Texas is still, despite uh, court order after court order, that Texas ID is still trying to trick voters into believing they need to have if they want to cast a vote this year in the presidential election. You know, that. welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There is a reason why the United States rated 53rd out of 153 countries worldwide concerning Perception of Electoral Integrity. This is the Perception of Electoral Integrity Index uh, put together by the Electoral Integrity Project, which is part of, uh, I believe it's the, yeah, I want to say University of Australia. I don't have it right here in front of me, but they came out with their new report this week um, finding that uh, the U.S. was almost dead last amongst developed Western democracies when it comes to election integrity. This is evidence uh, gathered as a global survey of more than 2,000 election experts around the country. And one of the reasons is because we continue gaming our election laws for political advantage. And that's what Republicans, we talk all the time on this program uh, about what Republicans are doing when it comes to things like photo ID restrictions and early voting. Um, and we've been talking specifically uh, about Texas's law, which they have for years been trying to put in place this strict photo ID to make it uh, they claim to prevent voter fraud, despite the fact that there is no actual voter fraud of the type that Texas uh, that this Texas law could possibly deter. The courts, the federal courts have found this law over and over again to be a violation of the Voting Rights Act, to be a violation of the Constitution. And in fact, uh, the most conservative appellate court in the land agreed. And this Texas photo ID law 
is not supposed to be used to keep voters from voting this year. As a matter of fact, just a few weeks ago, we had the very good news to report on this program that the state of Texas had agreed to a remedy that would allow the uh, that would allow any voter who did not have a photo ID to sim- uh, the, one of these specific types of photo ID to show a different type of photo I- of of ID like a, uh, a, a government paycheck, a utility bill, or and so forth, and sign a declaration, a reasonable impediment declaration, to say that there was a reasonable impediment that the voter had that they were unable to reasonably obtain the type of photo ID now required under this law. Now, at the time this agreement came up, I was quite concerned about it because I knew that it would lead to confusion and that it would be used by the state of Texas somehow to cause chaos at the polling place. Nonetheless, the Department of Justice and the private plaintiffs who had sued against this law agreed uh, to this court-ordered remedy, which was very specific and very specifically said that uh, the state of Texas and that poll workers, etc., could not challenge any voter if they signed one of these uh, affidavits at the polling place attesting to their uh, inability to reasonably obtain the type of photo ID now required. And now remember, you still have to show a photo ID. Perhaps the registration card that was sent to you when you registered. Uh, You still have to show some type of ID to vote in Texas, just not these very specific ones that excluded hundreds of thousands of legally registered voters. Legally registered, I should add, democratic-leaning Voters, uh, Hispanics and African-Americans and students and uh, so forth. Well, uh, no sooner we had the good news a few weeks ago that Texas had signed this law. uh, I'm sorry, had signed this remedy, this agreement, the settlement, essentially for now, uh, ordered by the uh, U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the most conservative uh, appellate court in the nation they agreed to all of these uh, to these rules to this remedy and then they immediately went about violating it they're supposed to put as part of this remedy uh, the state of texas uh, was supposed to put five uh, about five million dollars into an education program to let voters know the type of id that is now needed and how this would all work under their law They immediately went about violating their own agreement. So the DOJ, just a week or two after all of this had been signed, sealed, done, it looked like voters were going to be able to vote without too much of an impediment this November. Just weeks later, Texas immediately violated the agreement. So the DOJ had to go to court to try to get the federal court to stop what Texas was doing. And what Texas was doing included, uh, for example, the uh, uh, the county clerk down in um, uh, Harris County, that's Houston, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the county clerk was saying that he would use the declaration and people who signed that declaration uh, in order to investigate Anyone who signed it to make sure that they weren't lying. Ken Paxton, the attorney general of the state of Texas, the top law enforcement official in the state of Texas, who, by the way, is under indictment himself for for under for fraud charges. 
He said that he would use these uh, people signing this uh, uh, this affidavit as a uh, reason to investigate them and uh, bring possible perjury charges against them. So the DOJ had to go back to court. And now uh, on uh, on Monday this week, a federal judge has ruled that Texas violated its agreement with the U.S. Department of Justice over that state's uh, photo ID law. Texas Uh, This according to Houston Public Media. Texas negotiated the new requirements after the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that the law had discriminated against black and Hispanic voters. Under the agreement, voters would be able to use several alternative forms of ID if they do not possess one of the seven forms of ID required by the Texas law and if they, quote, cannot reasonably obtain it. They'd then have to sign that declaration to that effect. But in its educational campaign... Texas changed the wording from cannot reasonably obtain to cannot obtain and have not obtained the ID. The Justice Department argued that the change in language was misleading. It made people think that uh, there was absolutely no way that they could uh, that they could only sign this if there was absolutely no way to obtain an ID, period. And in fact, it was supposed to be cannot reasonably obtain. And this agreement was very specific. It was very clear on how uh, Texas needed to move forward. And then they immediately violated it. The Justice Department argued that the change in language was misleading. It was likely to discourage minority voters from going to the polls. U.S. District Judge Nelva Gonzalez Ramos agreed. Going forward, the state of Texas is now required to change important documents that were, in the court's wording, misleading, including language on the VoteTexas.gov website, in the Secretary of State's press release, and in the poster that will go uh, at the uh, at the polling place locations. That, according to an attorney with the Washington-based Campaign Legal Center representing the plaintiffs in this case, the state now has less than five weeks to revamp its voter education campaign before the start of early voting. Judge Ramos also said she would consider whether statements by Harris County Clerk Stan Stannert might be considered voter intimidation. Stannert had said he was uh, he would investigate everyone who signs a declaration saying they lack acceptable ID to make certain that they are not lying. When uh, Ernest Canning, our, uh, our our legal correspondent at Bradblog.com, covered this case a few weeks ago, uh, covered the the challenge to the state of Texas for violating. It's not even a few weeks ago. This was like a little over a week ago. Uh, He noted that, uh, uh, frankly, the Department of Justice, uh, well, here's what he wrote. Uh, When it comes to Attorney General Paxton, now, mind you, Ernie Canning, he's he's an attorney himself. So he said, uh, when it comes to Attorney General Paxton, a man who is himself under indictment for multiple felony counts of alleged securities fraud, Neither the Department of Justice nor the private plaintiffs have gone far enough in this case. Paxton's office directly participated in these proceedings. Indeed, his office signed off on the joint motion for entry of remedial order. That was the remedy that was supposed to, you know, make all of this go away for now. So uh, Paxton's office signed off on this, which uh, this agreement, which expressly set forth the proscription against either questioning or challenging, quote, voters 
concerning the voters' lack of ID and the voters' claimed impediment to obtaining the type of ID required under SB 14. Prior to allowing a voter to cast a regular ballot, a regular ballot, not a provisional ballot, a regular ballot with a reasonable impediment declaration. By issuing in advance of the election a threat, quote, to use the declaration of reasonable impediment as a basis for perjury prosecutions, Paxton, in a direct and contemptuous violation of the court's order, issued a challenge to every voter who seeks to rely upon these new court approved procedures, writes Canning. In this author's opinion, he said, the appropriate remedy should thus include an order that Paxton personally appear before Judge Gonzalez Ramos and show cause, if any there be, why he should not be held in contempt of court. Uh, yeah, I agree. And uh, Ramos is still uh, going to decide uh, whether she will do something about these election officials that would hopefully include Paxton, who have threatened to investigate uh, people who sign one of these reasonable impediment forms. This is where we're going in November, and this is not only in, uh, in, in the state of Texas. We're going to have this problem in a whole bunch of states all over the country. Now is an excellent time to check your voter registration. A lot of deadlines coming up. It's an excellent time to check not your not only yours, but to remind your friends and your family to check their registration as well and to register new voters and make sure they understand what the requirements are to vote in November. Well said, Desi Doyen. That's our producer, Desi Doyen. My thanks to uh, to her for helping us out today. My thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes if you prefer. Uh, while you're there, uh, give us a good review. Say some nice words about it. Uh, makes it a little bit easier for everyone else to find us as well. My thanks also to those of you who have stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and me continue to do what we do on the public airwaves, uh, as very few do. Good luck finding progressive radio on your public airwaves. But we're fighting like hell to keep it going. So thanks uh, to all of you who have allowed us to do that. If you have any email concerning today's program, you can reach me at bradcast at bradblog.com. You can also drop me a, a comment or thought on the Twitters or the Facebooks where you can find me as The Brad Blog. I think that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey, Friedman.